welcome everybody. Are you glad to be here? Well, that's convincing. Um, Hey, are you glad to be here? Yeah, all right. Hey, two weeks in a row. I call that a streak. And uh, welcome. Glad you could be here. And uh, I'm, obviously, I'm referring to those that may not know. We were down for a couple of weeks because of COVID, but we're back. And I'm glad to see all of you here. And I'm so glad many more of you are welcoming us online. And I look forward to the day when all of this is behind us. And we can all be back together and we all share the same comfort level with being here. But man, what I'm just thrilled to see all of you. For the past couple of weekends, we have been studying Romans chapter 14 together. And we've been trying to digest this teaching about finding acceptance for one another and unity, even in the midst of such diverse opinions, even within the church. And we learned in Romans 14, unity was a huge problem there. They, they, had, they had a very strong disagreement about what Christians are allowed to eat and what they are not allowed to eat. And, and Paul said, this is a disputable matter. And we might call it a gray area. This is a, um, an opinion. And Paul says, nobody's salvation's riding on this. And, and, and he gave them some guidelines to help navigate. And these guidelines, even today, if you overlay them on our opinions today, can really help us navigate uh, a number of things that definitely fall into the opinion realm. Um, I want to acknowledge uh, that our time in Romans 14 as a church family has sparked some really good um, conversation. I've heard back from a number of our life group leaders, and they've said, man, we've been having some very good study and, and, and conversation, and, and even among our staff here at the church. Um, a number of you have reached out to me personally with questions that you've had about Romans 14 or how might it apply to this situation. And even a few of you beyond that have communicated to me personally that uh, Romans 14 had caused you to think, rethink how you have been interacting with your brothers and sisters in Christ and what you, you know, have maybe have made uh, an opinion, something more than that, just, and, and you've changed. You've decided to make some intentional effort to find more unity and harmony, even though we disagree on opinion things. All of it boils down, and I shared this last week, that uh, like the, the, uh, it's not original with me, it's been around the church for years and years and years, that uh, how we're gonna approach this stuff is in essentials, we're gonna have unity. In non-essentials, we're gonna have some liberty with one another. But in all things, we're gonna have charity, or we're gonna love one another through all of these things. But saying that and going through that and having lots of conversations with many people the last couple of weeks, Something that uh, has come up that deserves more attention uh, than I have been giving it um, is this. Well, what are the essentials? Well, if we've been talking about all these opinions, well, what doesn't fall into the matter of opinion? What would you say is an essential thing? That's a question that has come up quite a bit. I believe it needs more attention, and I intend to give it that. One way to ask the question would be this. If Paul is teaching us in Romans 14 that we are supposed to look past our opinions for the sake of unity, you know, the opinions that have nothing to do with anybody's salvation, then what are the things that we can't look past? That might be another way of saying it. Or somebody say, hey, if somebody believes this, now whatever this is, if they believe this, then I can tell you right now there is no way that I could ever be unified if they believe that with them. Well, what is the this? Maybe another way to say that would be, you know, hey, if a church ever decided to preach this, or if a pastor ever decided to champion this thing, um, I couldn't be a part of it. There is no way I could ever be unified with that. 
I know right here in our New Life family that we've got folks over the years that have, have joined up with us because they came from a church that did just that. Their church changed their view. They started to champion or preach something that was absolutely violated their opinion, or excuse me, they violated their essential doctrine. And they said, I cannot be unified with a group that teaches this. So what are these essentials? What are the things that we can't afford to not be unified around essentially? Well, next week I want to let you know that I'm starting a brand new series called Grounded. And we are going to unpack together a number of these essentials. We're going to be spending some time digging into what are some of the core essential beliefs of the church that we have to be unified on. I mean, nothing, I mean, those things that it's not open for discussion, really. It's not an opinion. This is black and white in the Bible, the core doctrine essentials that we believe. And that's what this series is going to be all about starting next weekend. Now, every sermon that I preach, I do to the best of my ability, I want every sermon to reflect the core essential doctrines of God's word. But I have not preached a series here at New Life before about the essential doctrines of the Bible that we have to be unified on. Foundational beliefs in which there is no room for gray. This is what the Bible says, and so that's what we're going to follow. And that's what I intend to do starting next week. And I can tell you why this kind of study is so important right now is because the days that we are living in are too spiritually perilous to ignore. The devil is too cunning and he is too powerful for Christians today to not be grounded in the absolute and essential doctrines of the Bible. So I can't think of a better time next week than to start preaching a series like that. Now, to get us ready for that series, because I'll be honest with you, it's not one of those series that I think you just, just go right into cold turkey without any preparation. I, I feel like today's message is more like an introduction to where we're going. I, I need to say some things to you as a church family to get you ready and to get you in the right frame of mind to be able to dive into the series, how I envision it anyway, going starting next week. Um, to do that, I'm actually going to um, preach a sermon that's very similar to one that I preached about five years ago during the series that I was preaching during called The Difference. Now, uh, listen, I know the majority of you weren't here five years ago, so uh, I, I don't, ex you know, I, this is going to be like brand new to you. And those of you that were here five years ago, I would not expect you to recall every detail of every sermon that I ever preached in the last five years, Okay. Can I be a little bit transparent with you? Sometimes I'll pull out a sermon that I preached just a few months ago, and I'll reread it, and I'm like, did I say that? I don't, is that what I said? You know, I, I write out my sermons uh, word for word, in case you're wondering, so I can have a record of, of all that I said. And of course, it's out there in video and audio all over the place. I can always go back and look. But sometimes I go, man, did that come from me? That's pretty good. I like that. 
And then there's other times I'll review a sermon that I preached from a few years ago, and I'm like, oh, that needs to go right back into the file. I can't believe I made people sit through that. I, did I ask for forgiveness after this sermon? That doesn't ever need to come out again. I, I will do that from time to time because um, sometimes I'll come across a passage in the Bible that is relevant to the sermon I'm preaching, and I know that I've already preached that text in depth before, and I want to go back and remember and review my notes and what did I preach before, and in the process of getting ready for next week's series that's going to begin grounded, I reviewed a sermon that I preached about five years ago um, from our series, The Difference. And I reread that and I'm like, yes, so much of this I feel needs to be reworked and re-preached again. You know, it's one of those sermons that if you go back five years ago, um, it was one of those sermons that was kind of a, a turning point in our church. I'm not trying to build it up. That's not my goal. But it was one of those sermons in the, our church's history from a few years ago that people remembered and they were like, in our conversations, they would reference it. And as I reviewed that sermon, hadn't looked at it in, in, in a number of years, and I thought, man, I kind of convicted all over again. And I knew that that was some, of, some parts of that sermon need to be said again because it perfectly, in my opinion, sets up where we need to go as a church. I believe that what we're gonna talk about today transitions beautifully from our conversation of Romans 14 into, about opinions into our conversation about the essentials where there is no room for gray at all. I have this very strong memory from my childhood. I was in the sixth grade. Do you guys have memories from your childhood that are just like seared into your mind? Like you close your eyes, you can recall them. I have a few of those, and I'm sure we all have those. One of those is from sixth grade. It was Mrs. Gardner's class. She was my teacher in the sixth grade. And this was the day before we all left for Christmas break, okay? It was right at Christmas time. And, and she gave out into the quarter awards for our class. And she made these certificates, and, and she had written on them, Merry Christmas, and this is what the award is for. This is, this is back in a day when nobody batted an eye if you were to tell your class, Merry Christmas, or Christmas break. I mean, like some people do uh, nowadays. She called Jason to the front of the room and, and she gave Jason an award. And I'll never forget, this is the memory I have so strong. Jason looked at his certificate and he wadded it up and he threw it in the trash and he went and sat down. And we were like, <gasps> can you imagine? We were all shocked. I don't think any of us were shocked as Mrs. Gardner was shocked. Obviously that had never happened before. And so when she kind of collected herself, she said, Jason, why did you do that? And Jason said, I didn't want it. And she says, well, obviously you didn't want it, but that was very rude. That hurt my feelings. And Jason, in just kind of an unemotional way, he said, I still don't want it. And so there it stayed in the garbage can. Now, I remember I was dumbfounded for two reasons. One, I couldn't believe that Jason could be so rude to our teacher. And the second thing that dumbfounded me was that, that gift certificate or that, that certificate she gave me had a stamp on it for a free ice cream cone from McDonald's. I'm like, what are you doing? That's ice cream. 
You know what I didn't know at the time, but what I would later learn over the next couple of years as I got to know Jason a little bit better, is that uh, Jason came from a completely different faith background than me. He came from a belief system that didn't allow him to celebrate Christmas or birthdays or to have anything to do with it. And when he read that certificate and it said Merry Christmas, he's like, I don't want anything to do with that. And into the trash it went. It was the first time in my life that I have a memory of being confronted by somebody who believed completely different than I did. And at the time, I could not have told you how what I believed, you know, what I had been taught in Sunday school, was any different than what he believed. And we would say, well, you shouldn't be expected to. You're just a child. You're in the sixth grade. And that's understandable, isn't it? We wouldn't expect a sixth grader to be able to clearly articulate the differences between the many different faiths that are out there. I think the real struggle would be this. If three decades later... I still could not articulate what my faith was all about and how it's different than Jason's. What would happen? Can I ask you a question? What would happen if somebody becomes a Christian, but they never really grew beyond the elementary aspects of their faith? I mean, what if they sat in church year after year, but they never, like the Apostle Paul says in the Bible, got off spiritual milk and moved on to more solid foods? Spiritually speaking, well, what if they never grew? What if they never read their Bible? What if they you know, marginally attended church from time to time? What if it wasn't all that serious to them? Do you think that that person might just be a little bit more susceptible to some crazy wild idea that would come down the road? Do you think that person might just be a little bit more prone to chase after something that maybe looked like it was of God, but it really wasn't from God at all? Maybe it was a distortion of the truth? You know, as I observe the spiritual landscape of the American church today, it baffles my mind some of the conclusions that Christians can draw today. Like there are some things that I'll observe or I'll hear, I'll, and I'm like, how could, you, how, how could anybody that, that knows God's word come to a conclusion like that? Re- recently, I was, I was listening to a series of sermons from a, another preacher right here in Northwest Arkansas, and that preacher in that series taught his congregation that hell was a myth, and all people, regardless of their faith or their practice, they go to heaven because God's love is just that big. Now, what's your response to that? Now, some of you are like, oh, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. Okay, argue against it. You tell me, get out your Bible, and you tell me why he's wrong. Oh, well, I can't do that. Well, why can't you do that? Well, I mean, I can't do that. But what I can do is I can get your phone number, Joe, and I can give his, your phone number to him, and you guys work it out, and you guys, t- and you tell him, no, I'm being funny here. Why is he wrong? What is it about that that's wrong? What is it about that that's not right? Friends, the church in Jerusalem started some 2,000 years ago, and it started on the day of Pentecost, and we read about this in the book of Acts, and that history spans some 2,000 years, and it is a fascinating history. If you've read about the history of the church over the last couple thousand years, I became a Christian when I was 11 years old. I grew up in a preacher's home. My familiarity with church and of Christ is about four decades old. 
I cannot speak for all 2,000 years of our church history, but I can talk about, I think, with pretty good um, understanding about what the last four decades of that church history has been like. And I can tell you, this is my opinion. This is the conclusion I have come to, that the church today seems less grounded than any other time in my life. The church in America today seems to be chasing after some wild, no, that's not the right word, unbiblical pursuits. You know, one of my jobs as a pastor is I, I wear a lot of different hats. And those hats wear a number of different roles. And there are times as your pastor, I feel like I'm the guy that's got his hand on the button that triggers the red alert. Get your guard up. Something's coming. Sometimes I feel like that. Sometimes I feel like, you know, the old World War II movies where, where the guy's spinning the handle, he's sounding the air raid horn because the bombers are coming. Sometimes I feel like that's my role here. And so, friends, I'm sounding the alarm for you today. And something that I've, I've tried to do often is that, uh, and I've talked about this often, and I will talk about it again today, that there is a very dangerous version of Christianity that is sweeping across our nation that is called, it's had lots of names, but it's called today, what I'll call it is progressive Christianity, and it has nothing to do with politics, by the way. It is a manipulation of Christianity. If the Apostle Paul were alive today, he would call it a false gospel. He would call it something that is no gospel at all, but it's leading people astray. And it's something that Paul would say that if I or an angel or any other creature were to, to preach this gospel that's different than what Jesus, then let him be eternally condemned. It's, it's one of those. And it is rapidly growing. And it is infiltrating the church in America it's a message that's hidden in, in sermons and in literature, but it's a message that speaks of Jesus as a way to enlightenment, but he's not the way to heaven. There are multiple ways. Now, it's usually not that bold or in your face, but if you're paying attention, you can, you can, you can see it. It's a message that, that uh, preaches that the Bible is just one of many sources of truth out there, no greater or less than any other source of truth. And again, it may not be stated that bluntly, but it sounds like this in progressive churches. Hey, we are a church that takes the Bible seriously, but not literally. Friends, if you ever find yourself in a church and the preacher stands up and says, hey, our church, we take the Bible seriously, but not literally, I want you to get up and leave because you're in a dangerous place. It's a, it's a message that says, as Christians... We are all-inclusive, all faiths, all orientations, all beliefs. You know what? They can all fit very nicely here. If you're paying attention, you'll hear it. Now, perhaps I would say that, that progressive Christianity's, this, 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 this version of Christianity, its most dangerous distortion is that it preaches a message of relativism over Bible doctrine. Okay, it's, it's this message that preaches relativism more than Bible doctrine. Now, what is relativism really? How I mean it is, it's this belief out there that there is no absolute truth. Relativism, no truth. All points of view 
are equally valid and that all truth is relative to the individual. That's a very dangerous distortion of God's word. Relativism is a way of saying, hey, whatever works for you, great. That's the most important thing in this moment then. In in this relativism message, I hear things like, hey, there is not one system out there that contains all truth that there is to know. If you've ever heard someone say or a preacher say, hey, what's right is right for you, but it may not be right for the person next to you, you got to figure out what's right in your context. We live in America and a nation that, that says things like, anything goes. Hey, if Mormonism works for you, great. If you want to be a Muslim, fantastic. Oh, you want to follow Christ? Great, if that works for you. Whatever floats your boat. Just be committed to what you believe. Hey, however you orient yourself in the way you think and act, then hey, that's, that's up to you. You declare it. It's fantastic. Live with who you want to live with. Be intimate with whoever you want to be intimate with and whenever you want to be intimate. Who am I to say how or when or who or what that looks like? Tell the truth or don't tell the truth. It just depends on the scenario. Do what works for you. You find your truth wherever you can find it. You know, there's some truth among all beliefs. That's what relativism says. There's truth out there. Just go out and hunt it down. Just find the one that fits you the best. You know, you know not only that, but you can live a lifestyle that reflects how you want to live it. Sin, that's just a matter of perspective. What's most important is you be you. You, you, you be okay with you. It doesn't really matter what God thinks because God's cool with you anyway. Who am I to tell you any different? These are the messages that come out of this progressive Christianity. And I believe that its most dangerous distortion is this relativism that I'm talking about here. No absolute authority. You know, you, you define what works best for you. There is no standard to live by except the standard you put yourself under. I remember a number of years ago, I was watching a, a TV special about Oprah Winfrey. She was giving a tour of one of her homes and she took the camera crew up to a room in her house. She said, this is my favorite room in the whole house. It was covered with books and magazines. And she said, this table right here, there's a table in the middle of the room. It was covered with books and, and, and meditation guides and devotionals and all kinds of things from all different kinds of, of world religion, and she said, you know what? I find truth. I find um, um, application to my life from all different sources out there. Now, I like Oprah. I don't want you to hear any, I don't want you to hear any different. I like Oprah. I'm not knocking her, but she expresses the way many in our world think today. She expresses a mentality that wants to wiggle its way into the church, that there's truth among all beliefs and whatever you believe is the most important as it applies to your life right now, that is what you need to be about. And like I said, this kind of thinking, friends, is wanting to creep into and is creeping into mainstream Christianity today. And the church is not immune to progressive Christianity's most dangerous distortion of relativism. Case in point, case in point. 30 years ago, 
the idea or the thought that entire mainstream denominations in our land would promote the things that they do today would be unheard of. What has become commonplace would have been unfathomable just a decade or two ago. The idea that a pastor could run for a political office on an open pro-abortion platform and win would have been something that absolutely, not even the realm of imagination. Could you imagine a pastor running for office on a pro-abortion platform? That wouldn't happen. Just did. But sadly, that's the reality today. Why? Because relativism is on the rise among Christians. Truth in a number of churches has become relative to the individual. It's like, I know what the Bible says, but I will decide what is right or wrong for me. I love Jesus. I define the nature of my relationship with him. And as long as I feel like that I am in good, good shape with God, then who are you to say any different about the way I choose to live my life? Morality in the church shifts to reflect a relationship with culture, not God's word. And this is a sad day in many churches, my friends, when the church shifts to match culture instead of the church adjusting to match God's word. Do you remember, some of you remember this, you remember the old TV show, um, Everybody Loves Raymond? Do you remember that show? Wildly popular back in the day, and I think it's still in rerun somewhere. I used to watch that show. Uh, I remember one episode uh, very specifically. Um, Raymond had a brother named Robert, you know, the big tall guy with a deep voice, and he had a fiance named Amy. Now in the show, Amy is depicted as a conservative Christian. She was raised in a very conservative home and, and with very conservative parents. And what becomes, very, uh, what becomes known in this episode I'm referring to is that, Ed, that Amy's parents have no idea that Amy and Robert have been intimate. They are not married together and living together and she doesn't know how she's gonna tell, how she's gonna break the news to her parents because this is gonna be a very shocking thing to them. This is not how she was raised. And as she talks to her parents, she breaks the news to them. Of course, they're shocked. But here was the most shocking thing of the whole conversation. And, I, and it's not shocking because it's Hollywood. It's shocking because it reflects so much of how even Christians think today. She looked her parents in the eye and she said, I have decided that this is not a sin. It's a TV show. But it's that exact mentality that is creeping its way inside of Christianity today. I decide what is right and wrong for me. I decide what is and what isn't sin. And as long as God and I are good, who are you to say? Friends, this is a distortion of the true gospel that says to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I think relativism's most dangerous outcome is when the narrative of your walk, it shifts from God's will be done to my will be done. I wanna show you something that I brought with me today. And this is something that I keep in my office. I look at it every day. 
It's on a shelf full of Bibles that I have, family Bibles that have been in our family for many, many years. How many of you know what this is? It's a plumb line, that's right. You know, Bob Vila says that a plumb line is one of the 12 tools you can't live without. I don't know, I've never used one. I guess I'm doing all right. I'm not really a construction guy. Plumb lines have been around for Years and years and years and years, thousands of years, really. It's a very simple device. It's not even mechanical at all. It's just a string that has a weighted end to it. And uh, this is much heavier than what it looks, but I can handle it. You know, I've been working out a little bit. (laughs) But if I were to nail this to a board and just let it hang, eventually it's going to become perfectly still. Gravity is going to pull it down. And what happens is, once that thing completely stops and is not moving you are gonna have a perfect, and I mean a perfect vertical line. It is gonna be straight. There's not gonna be anything straighter than that line on the planet. And what they'll use this for is somebody that might be building a wall. They'll build a wall and they'll, 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 they'll connect a plumb line right next to it. And after it's completely still, they'll measure the distance between the plumb line and the wall. And they know that the plumb line is perfectly straight. This is correct all the time, but if their wall's a little bit crooked, it's out of plumb. But if that wall is perfectly straight, then it's called, that wall has been built in plumb. It's perfect. This tells the truth. This will tell the truth if your wall is perfectly straight and vertical. In the Old Testament, we meet a prophet named Amos. Amos lived at a very challenging time a very dark time in Israel's history. And God is about to pronounce judgment on the Israelites for their sin and rebellion. And he gives Amos a visual demonstration of how God sees his people. It's found in Amos chapter seven. You don't need to turn there, but it's gonna be on the screen behind me. It's also in the app if you wanna follow along. But listen to what, with this conversation that God has with Amos. Amos says, this is what God showed me. This is a very visual illustration. This is what God showed me. The Lord was standing by a a wall that had been built true to plumb. In other words, a perfectly straight wall. And, and, And he had a plumb bob or a plumb line in his hand. So this is what Amos sees. I see a wall built to plumb and I see God holding a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? What are you looking at? What are you staring at? And he says, a plumb line. This is, like I said, this has been around for thousands of years. He goes, that's what I see, God. I see, I see a plumb line. And the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. What's God telling Amos? He said, I laid a plumb line by my people, among my people, Israel. God is using this very familiar tool as an illustration to show the Israelite people what they need to know, that God is gonna measure them by his standard. God's like, my way is true. My vertical line, what I want you to live by is absolutely true. It is perfect. I want you to live by my standards. I'm not gonna adjust this to meet you where you're at. No, 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 I want you to come up to me. This is the standard. This is what you're gonna live by. I have dropped a plumb line among my people. Israel, what are you gonna do? How straight is this wall you're gonna build? You know, friends, we've spent the last two weeks in Romans 14 talking about our opinions 
and how to have unity over non-essential things, gray areas, things that are as diverse as our imagination. Now we are moving our discussion from non-essential things to the essential things. And to do that, we have to start in a place that is true. And I'm here to tell you today that God has set a plumb line among his church. God has already declared what is straight, what is true, what his standard is going to be. What we believe and what we are building here at New Life must be in plumb with God. And if we're not in plumb with God, if we're not in plumb with God right here at New Life Christian Church, what we're all about and what we do and what we preach and, and then we're in real trouble. Would you agree with that? If your walk with Jesus is not in plumb, there's some work that needs to be done in your life. There may be some sin that you need to be repenting of. There may be some lifestyle choices that you need to change. There might be some environments that need to adjust. God has laid down his plumb line for the church. And if we're not in plumb with God, we're in trouble. So I want you to know, as we go into this series on grounded, what is essential, I want you to know that here at New Life, God's word and God's word alone is going to be the plumb line for us. We are always going to strive to be biblical Christians. Now, I didn't say perfect because there's no such thing as a perfect Christian. If you're looking for a perfect Christian or a perfect church, you didn't find it today, okay? But I can tell you what we're striving to be. We are striving to be biblical Christians. And what does that mean? Biblical means that the Christian believer searches seriously and carefully for the meaning of the Bible on its own terms. It means what does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? I'm looking for what the Bible says, not changing its meaning to fit the times we are living in. That's progressive Christianity. That we will adjust the Bible to fit what we want. That's not what biblical Christians do. Biblical Christians go to God's word and they search it out seriously for its meaning and to adjust our life to God's word. That is the plumb line. Biblical Christians approach the Bible with reverence and respect because they believe that it is true and it is authoritative and it contains the very words of God. So in light of that, here at New Life, you know, how do we describe ourselves? Do we just tell people we're biblical Christians? Some would get it, some wouldn't. So, you know, when people ask me, Joe, what kind of church is New Life? This is what I tell them. At New Life, we are a Bible-believing church. And we are a Christ-centered church. And I'll often say it like that. At New Life, we are a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. And by Bible-believing, we believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. It's God's truth to mankind. It's the foundation of all that we believe. It's God's word that drives our doctrines. It's God's word that drives our actions. And the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 16, he said, Timothy, here's something you gotta do. Be very conscientious of this. You gotta watch your life and you gotta watch your doctrine very closely. In other words, watch what you believe and watch how you act 
Those two things are of utmost importance to our heavenly Father. Bible believing. And when we say Christ-centered, what we mean is this. As a church family, as Christians, all of our practices, who we are and what we do revolves around the person of Jesus Christ and his saving work on the cross. We believe without apology that Jesus Christ died on the cross and three days later he rose back to life. We believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And so we identify as Christian because it bears his name. That's who we are. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. This identifies our family. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live in my body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Bible-believing, Christ-centered Christians. And friends, this is the backdrop, what I'm talking about today, to our next series, Grounded. This is why I said this is more of an introduction to where we are going in our conversation with essentials. So, the Lord has laid a plumb line in our church family. That's the standard. It's interesting. And I, 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 I've heard this. Now, I can't point to you where it's a fact, but I've heard this. Maybe if you can find out if it's true or not, you can tell me, but the illustration still stands. I have heard that federal agents who are being trained to identify counterfeit currency when they are training those agents, they do not give them the counterfeit currency as a training tool. What they do instead is they give them the real money and they train these agents to learn everything there is to know about real money, what it's made from, how it's made, how it's printed, how it's all put together, every little ounce of fiber, the way it feels and, and, and all of that, where the ink goes and where every little mark on the bill and, and, and they only train them with real money. And, and I heard they did that or they do that because when they become so familiar with the real thing, it becomes easy to identify that which isn't. You know, I think about a similar way about our faith. Christians don't learn to, to pick out counterfeit faiths or things that are half-truths or things that aren't really of God or, or these wild, crazy ideas that don't line up with the Bible. We don't really learn about those things or identify them by studying them. No, 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 we will learn more about how to identify that stuff by spending our time with the real Lord, spending our time in God's word daily, praying to our heavenly father, talking with God, living daily, being guided by the Holy Spirit. And when you are living your life that way to the core essential doctrines of God's word, when you are plumb with God, then let me tell you, it becomes easy to identify that stuff that is not of God. And that's what I hope this series will help us do. So I wanna invite you to come back next week as we begin to dive into these essential doctrines of the Bible. And, and, and if you are unclear about what the essential doctrines are, I, I want you to come and I want you to learn and I, because we all have the desire, God, I wanna be plumb with you. Now before we go, I wanna tell you something that I'm putting a tool in your hand today. If you have the app downloaded on your phone, there is a new icon on the app that was not there last week and it looks like this right here. It's kind of a guy that's got roots growing out of his feet. Um, the word is grounded. 
And if you were to tap that on your phone, it's gonna take you to a form that you, it's really a very simple form. And this is an opportunity for you to share with me the questions you have about our doctrine. There's a question on there that says, what does the Bible say about, and you fill it in. And I want you to have direct access of your questions and your thoughts to me. And this is the best way to do that. So if you've got questions, and I'm not looking for you to do pie in the sky, extreme, outrageous examples, you know, I, but what are you thinking? I've always wondered about this. What, what, where does the church follow this? Does the Bible say anything about this? And let me know. Now, I, I can't promise you that it's going to get into the series of sermons, but some of it might. But what it will do is it will help me have an understanding of the kind of questions about our doctrine that our church may be happen, having. Our church has grown quite a bit in the last couple of years. And we have people in our church. Our church family today is made up of, of Christians from all different kinds of backgrounds. We have baby Christians in our church. And we have seasoned saints that have been here, been Christians for many, many years. It's like their roots go down deep and there's not much that's going to shake their faith. We've got folks in our church that have been sitting in, 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 in here for years, but they're still on spiritual milk. They've never grown. And we've got folks that are brand new Christians, but they are growing leaps and bounds. What I'm trying to say is, 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 is we have the full range from just starting to fully mature, from immature to men of men of great faith. I'm not making the assumption that every single one in our church family can articulate clearly the essential doctrines of our faith. And, and, and I'm not taking for granted that uh, we all know what they are. But like I said, you know what my job is? Sound the alarm, but also my job is to teach. And if we're gonna have unity, we need to have a unity around the core. And by the time that we're done, I want everybody in our church to say, yep, this is what I believe. And this is why I know why we believe it. And this is where it's found in scripture. And this has firmed up my faith like you would not believe. That's what I hope happens. So I'm asking for feedback. How many preachers do you know ask their congregation for feedback? I'm asking you for feedback on real legitimate questions about our faith and about our doctrine. And I will do my best to try to weave that into this series that we're going through. And if I can't weave it in, then, um, then at least I know kind of where, where we are as a church and where we might need to address some, some subject matter moving forward this year. So anyway, uh, that's, that's a tool in your hands. And I really hope that you'll take advantage of that opportunity. You know, we live in a dangerous world. And, and, and when we think about it in terms like that, we think about our foreign enemies. We think about things that are dangerous to us. But when I talk about living in a dangerous world, I'm talking about spiritually. This is the world the devil dwells. And he hates us. And if he can manipulate us, and if he can destroy us, he'll do it by any means possible. You know what our weakest defense is against the enemy? Ignorance. Our weakest defense is, I don't know what the Bible says. But friends, we're going to sure up our defenses. Friends, I don't want anybody to feel inadequate in any way, shape, or form. You come ready to learn and to grow and become the child of God that God's always envisioned for life and you've always thought of yourself as well. So that's all I can give you. Oh, I can start the series right now. You want another sermon? You ready? No, I'm just kidding. We got to go. I'm already late. Apologize to the children's volunteers downstairs because 
it's the burden on them when I go long. So anyway, tell them I'm sorry, would you? Let me pray for you. God, thank you for allowing us to be here today. And Lord, we need your help because we're not as smart as we think we are. And we don't know as much as we think we do. So Lord, all we desire to be is men and women of great faith who are in plumb with you. Lord, I think that maybe use the plumb line as an illustration because it creates a vertical line. Something that connects us straight to our Heavenly Father, maybe. But Lord, we ask for your help. And Lord, I pray for any conviction that has already happened in this room today about anything we might be involved in. Lord, I just know your word has a way of bringing up out of us those things that need to be adjusted, those things that need to change, those things that, that only you, Lord, bring to our attention. And if that's happened today, Lord, I pray we'll take that seriously. Say, Lord, I want to be plumb with you. So Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.